This is Lisa Earhart for TalkBox Radio. My special guest today is author Greg Creech. He served as executive director at the Toto Institute since 1992. Greg is one of the leading authorities of Japanese psychology in the United States and the author of several books, including the award-winning book, Nikon, Gratitude, Grace, and the Japanese Art of Self-Reflection. His work has been featured on public TV and radio and in books, professional journals, and magazines such as Body and Soul, Utney Reader, Cosmopolitan, Self, Tricycle, and Counseling Today. He is the editor of 30,000 Days, a journal of purposeful living, and frequently conducts programs for audiences ranging from Zen Center students to mental health professionals. Greg Creech opened new doors to self-reflection in his book, Nikon, Gratitude, Grace, and the Japanese Art of Self-Reflection. Now he draws on Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, Japanese psychology, Zen, and martial arts to offer an approach to action that goes beyond productivity and time management. Most of us associate Eastern wisdom with meditation, but Creech demonstrates the importance of action as an essential element in our spiritual and emotional health and provides the psychological tools that can help move us forward, even when feeling depressed, discouraged, or just stuck. Weaving together an extraordinary collection of teachings, Creech addresses practical issues such as procrastination, stress, anxiety, and indecision, but through a lens of classic Eastern wisdom. Students of Buddhism, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and Japanese culture will resonate with the ideas Creech presents and come away with both inspiration and practical guidance for turning those ideas into action. It's not just about getting things done, but about what you do how you do it, and the impact of your action and inaction on the world around you. Your karma, your legacy, the world is waiting for you. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my special guest, Greg Creech. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing fine. We just uh, had our first winter storm a couple of days ago here in Vermont, so um, I'm enjoying uh, the aftermath of that in terms of a nice little carpet of uh, white encircling us. Well, that's very beautiful. Some of that needs to come down here. I'm in North Carolina, and we need rain badly. So everybody uh, out there, pray for rain. We've got a lot of wildfires. We've got a drought. So um, anyway, but on a Brighter note, we're going to talk today about your fantastic book, The Art of Taking Action. Now, before we launch into this topic, um, can you just tell our listeners where they can find the book uh, to purchase it? Sure. Um, it's available, probably the easiest thing is it's available on Amazon. And uh, <clears throat> generally, if you just go to Amazon and do a search there for um, the title of the book, The Art of Taking Action. Um, it'll usually kind of come right up, and they have, there's both a an ebook, a Kindle book that you can get digitally, um, and a printed book that you can order and have delivered. Very good. So uh, what I'd like you to do right now is just uh, tell us a little about you and how you came to write this book, Greg. Okay. Well, um <clears throat> I had uh, I started studying Japanese psychology back in the 
uh, mid to late 1980s. Um, I was a, um, a student of Buddhism for many years. Um, I actually lived as a Zen monk for a short period of time in Japan. Um, so I, I had an inclination towards things Eastern. Right? Um, and uh, when I looked at Western psychology, um, mm-hmm. I often found myself turned off by what I conceived of as the um, emphasis on self-centeredness or self-focus in a lot of Western psychology and Western psychotherapy. And I discovered Japanese psychology uh, was much more consistent with my own view and my own values, values like um, gratitude and compassion and service uh, and also a, a a focus not just on oneself, but a focus on um, other people or a focus on, on looking outside of oneself in terms of the impact that we have on the world. Uh, and so for many years, for, for over 25 years, I've been teaching this material now uh, in workshops and online courses and, and individual one-on-one work. Um, but actually the, the incident that really... Um, stimulated this particular book was my father's death because uh, my father lived about 700 miles away in Chicago and he was in his 80s and he wasn't doing that well and my wife and I um, would just regularly encourage him to move out here to Vermont where we could be taking better care of him since I didn't get to do very much for him at that distance and his response was always well we'll see and so for years, you know, he would respond with, well, we'll see. And that was kind of my, uh, you know, my signal to just drop the subject. Uh, and then uh, my brother, who he was living with, had a, an accident that kind of temporarily disabled him. And I talked to my dad one day, and he agreed to come out. And I was very excited. And um, we actually rented him an apartment right near where my daughters, teenage daughters, went to high school. And we furnished it. And I got a... Um, I planned in, in January of that year, it was 2014, to go out there. I got a ticket for myself and a one-way ticket for him to bring him back to his new place, and we had um, everything set up for him. And when I got out there, I'll just, I won't go into the details, but basically um, an hour before I arrived at his home, uh, he was rushed to the emergency room of the hospital. Um, I spent the next two weeks with him, first in the hospital and then about 10 days in hospice, uh, at which point he died of lung cancer. Uh, and so he never actually got to um, see this place that we had set up for him. He never got to live here. He never got a chance to ex- experience life kind of in a situation where he would have had a lot more contact with his family. And uh, uh, and so it, it saddened me that you know that was the end of his life. And it made me realize, uh, and I think this happens a lot when people that we're close to and that we love die, is that uh, for all of us, we're going to face that moment of death at one point or another. Uh, and we put that out of our mind because it's an unpleasant thought, but um, it really can't, as unpleasant as it is, it can drive us to really look at what's important to do with our life. And I realized that one of the things that was important for me to do was to write this particular book, about taking action because I had been thinking about it for years, but I'd never actually decided to move ahead with it. So he was really, his death was really the inspiration for me to, to write this, um, knowing that uh, in the same way, uh, I didn't, I don't know how much time that I have left. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing that the tragedy 
ended up giving you a gift. And his death sprang this book, gave birth yeah, he, to the in a way, that inspired the book. Yes, absolutely. It, it inspired the book and gave birth to the book. And um, uh, and I dedicated the book to him, and the the book's been translated into a couple of different languages. And I recently got a copy of the book in Italian, and, and I got to read my dedication to him in Italian, you know, and at the end of the dedication it says, uh, Grazie, Papa. And um, it just brought tears to my eyes because um, I realized that that it was it was this uh, tragic incident in um, my life, his death, which which actually made this book possible, and so um, so I always kind of see this as a gift that he left me with. Uh, yeah, yeah, death is one of those things. I mean, we all have to deal with it, and I think that it it does bring in perspective your appreciation for that person in a different type of way. Um, so. What I'd like to do is also ask you now about Japanese psychology and how that ties in with the book. Oh, and by the way, before you do that, I love the title, The Art of Taking Action. How did you come into that title? How, what, how did you come up with that? Well, um, that's actually a great question. I'm trying to think back to you know when I, was, when I was coming up with a title for the book, and I think you know mostly I would just... Um, brainstorm along with my wife and uh, my assistant ed- editor Nancy Martin. We would just brainstorm different titles, but um, but I loved. Uh, ultimately, I settled on that title, "The Art of Taking Action," because I really do think that it's it's not um, a science; that it really is much more of an art. And if you think about what it takes to um, master an art form, you think about someone you know who who becomes a a great painter or a great um, musician, right? And a lot of of what goes into that is practice. It's it's doing that thing over and over again. Um, if there was a scientific equation we could follow, we probably could um, become masters at something much quicker. But uh, when we think of something as an art form, we really think of something somebody who has worked for many many years towards mastering a, a particular. Uh, approach to something, and I think that that um, taking action in life is some is like that. I think that uh, uh, the more that we um, take action, and the more that we yeah. learn about doing that, particularly in in difficult situations, uh, the better that we get at it. And and so over a period of time, we start developing skills um, that make us better at taking action in our life. Right, and art implies something beautiful too rather than drudgery. I mean, parts of taking action maybe aren't so much fun, but once you do the action, you feel a sense of accomplishment, so there's an excitement about that. And in your uh, introduction, I love the quote you have, action is the antidote to despair, and that's uh, Joan Baez had said that. Action is the antidote to despair. Would you talk a little bit about that? Oh, and by the way, I just want to give credit to your wife. Um, her name is Linda Anderson Creech, and she's also, there's an article uh, by her in the book, and she works with you um, in a Toto Institute. Um, and I want to, and your, your website link is on the website descri- on the description here, 
But um, why don't you give that to our listeners right now, your website link, so they know where to find you. Sure. The, uh, our main website is, is called the todoinstitute.org. The organization is the Todo Institute, and that's spelled T-O-D-O Institute. So it's all one word, dot O-R-G. Um, and that's how you can get to uh, our main website if you want to, to do that. And what does Toto mean? Well, uh, it's interesting because in Vermont, we're, we're generally referred to as the To-Do Institute, which, of course, is right, a very right. kind of, it's just... <laughs> an action-oriented way of looking at what we do. But actually, the original term, Toto, is a Japanese uh, term, and it means um, Eastern Way. So um, Do is like the way, um, and like uh, Judo or something, and To is like Eastern, is in Tokyo, which is Eastern City. So in Japanese, Toto is Eastern Way. In English, uh, Toto or To Do is really kind of uh, a word that we put at the top of our list of things we're doing that day. And then in Spanish, Toto has a meaning as well, which is to mean all or everything. So it actually has a meaning in, in three different languages. So now um, let's talk about action as the antidote to despair and how that ties sure, in with – yeah, go ahead. Well, I think it, it is a wonderful quote, and, uh, <clears throat> and I think that the thing that really distinguishes Japanese psychology in terms of how we look at that quote is that um, for the, the natural way or the common way of looking that, at that in, in a – practical sense would be that we feel despair and that um, somehow we have to get ourselves into a different state of mind so that we're not feeling despair anymore. Um, And then we're able to take action. So you can substitute depression or anxiety for despair. um, But it's the idea that we have a very unpleasant um, feeling state that we're in. And then um, somehow if we can change or fix that feeling state, um, then we can actually move forward and do the things we need to do in our life. But the the huge difference in terms of Japanese psychology and in terms of the art of taking action is really that it's the action itself that is the um, uh, the way that we address despair or depression or anxiety. And what that means is that rather than trying to fix our feeling state or change it, we simply accept it and we learn to coexist with it as we move forward. So in other words, while we're feeling despair, we take action. Or while we're feeling depressed, we take action. Or while we're feeling anxious about, let's say, giving a, a presentation in public, um, while we're feeling anxious, we get up in front of a group and we give that presentation. And so that action is actually the antidote to despair um, without having to actually fix or change uh, our internal experience um, the action itself um, begins to influence how we're feeling. Because I believe you were saying somewhere that you can't change your feelings. Is that correct? Yes, and I think that that's um, it's one of the, I think, problems we won't run into with um, traditional Western psychology where um, so much of the energy and so many different approaches is based on trying to um, change our feeling state. So um, if we're anxious, the idea is let's let's go through some kind of um, psychological or counseling or therapeutic process that helps us to feel no to no longer feel anxious, right? And um, 
from my standpoint, that's a form of resistance. As soon as we feel anxious and we want to feel better, we're bringing resistance into our situation. And that resistance, um, in my, I think, has the opposite effect. In other words, it, it creates a, a heightened state of anxiety. And one of the things it does is it creates, with our attention, a, a state of self-focused attention. So we're fo- so focused on our inner experience, our anxiety, that it's almost impossible to get out of it. Um, so I don't believe that we have the power um, through our direct will or direct control to change our feeling state. I think we can influence our feeling state, and most of us have done that many times, and we, we do that um, uh, through taking action, uh, through distracting ourselves with paying attention to something else, through um, getting involved with some type of activity where um, we notice that our attention has shifted to something else. Even just watching a movie um, uh, or, or reading a great novel can shift our attention away from our unpleasant feeling state. So, um, so we can influence uh, our feeling state, but we're not in a position of simply being able to kind of willfully um, change it so that it goes from being depressed to not being depressed. So, so the way that I work with people um, and the way that you work with people in this model is to not suggest that they try to change their feelings. But the question that's much more important is what do you want to do with your life? What's important for you to do? Whether you feel depressed or you feel happy, what's important for you to do? So it's a very empowering approach because it doesn't require that we feel motivated or that we even feel good in order to take action and do the things that are important in our life. So what are the roadblocks that cause procrastination? So let's let's use an example. Um, you have uh, part of the book, it talks about rushing, leaving things to the last minute. Let's say you have to pack for a trip, mm-hmm. and you really don't want to pack. Right. So you're procrastinating about pa- What is causing the procrastination other than maybe not feeling like doing it? What causes that? Well, I think that the the thing that you just said, not feeling like doing it, is really, I think, the key to what so many of us struggle with when we think about procrastination. And what it really comes down to is um, a very simple idea, which is um, we tend to do the things that we like to do and not to do the things that we don't like to do. And mm-hmm. it sounds extremely simple. Even a five-year-old child can understand that. But it opens up a whole world of procrastination and then the consequences of procrastination when we don't do the things that we need to do. And so one of the things that we have to learn is to essentially overcome our likes and dislikes. That um, instead of responding to what I feel like doing, right, um, let's say it, there's a piece of chocolate cake in the in a bakery and I'm walking past the bakery and I see it in the window um, and I have an attraction to it and I have a craving for it and I feel like stopping and going into the bakery and having that piece of cake. Um, and so uh, if I can resist doing that, in other words, if I cannot do what I feel like doing, I'm empowered. I've I've got freedom. I have the freedom of making a choice. Will I eat that cake or won't I eat that cake? But if I'm always or most of the time responding to my feelings of what I like to do and then, and then acting on those feelings, I basically really have no freedom. I'm essentially a slave to my feeling state. 
And that is works in the same way when we have an aversion to something, when we don't like to do something. So for me, um, one of the things I really don't like to do is taxes. <laughs> and so um, I'm sure I'm not alone in that, but I, I just don't like to do taxes. And um, and so when it comes tax time, I notice these, these feelings of aversion. I notice my tendency to um, shift away from doing that, even though I know it's what I need to do, to doing either, whether it be watching a movie or even doing something else constructive. It could be washing the dishes or doing my laundry so that I can think, well, I'm, I'm doing something useful. But what I'm really doing is I'm going with my feeling state, which is my aversion to doing taxes. So ultimately, mm-hmm. the, person, the person who's really empowered and who has freedom is the person who isn't a slave to their likes and dislikes. And, um, and there's ways to practice that. Um, which which is part of what I teach people in courses. But if we can reach a point where we aren't a slave a slave to our, our feelings of what we like and don't like, then we can overcome probably ninety percent of the situations where we procrastinate. And more importantly, we can move forward on the things that are important for us to do in our life, regardless of whether we feel happy or joyful or anxious or depressed. So are you getting better at getting to your taxes now? Um, I am, and uh, um, and I, I have been for, for many years now. And one of the things that I've found is I still don't like to do them. In other words, um, even though over the last 20 years I'm much more disciplined at doing them, um, I still don't like to do them. But here's a, an interesting principle, and I mentioned this in the book as well, which is once I get myself to sit down, I, need, I now do my taxes on my computer, so once I get to sit down, uh, to sit down in front of the computer and I start doing them, almost always find that actually doing my taxes is not nearly as bad as the anticipation of doing my taxes. Does that make this any sense very, to you? That's it right there. The anticipation. So the anticipation causes the resistance. Is that right? Yes. I think that, that in many cases, um, the anticipation of something that we really don't want to do is actually worse than doing it. And so it's not like once I sit down and start doing it, after five minutes I'm thinking, oh, I love this, this is really enjoyable. But what I'm finding is this really isn't so bad, and and I actually have little moments where it's kind of interesting. Um, So I still don't like to do it, but it's not nearly as bad as what I anticipated it would be like. And I think a lot of life is like that. And what happens is you can think about this cycle. We have to do something. We anticipate it. Um, we we get this feeling state of aversion. We really don't want to do it. So what do we do? We avoid it, right? And that seems to feed um, that aversion even more. And and even more so now, um, we anticipate how bad this is going to be and that we really don't want to do it. So it becomes a cycle in which the more we avoid something, um, the more we feel an aversion to it, and the less likely likely we are to do it. So it, and of course, with taxes and a lot of things in life, um, ultimately it gets us into trouble if we don't eventually do those things. So, what are some steps? And I, I am so we are so short on time. I'm going to have to have you back on for a longer podcast because mm-hmm. we are only touching the surface here, although um, in a deep way. What are some steps? that our listeners could take today to break through their procrastination? Okay. 
Well, since since we're short on time, Lisa, I'll, I'll basically get down to what I think is the best advice I can give people in those situations. And you, you said, what are some steps? Um, any steps that basically are small. And, and if you read my book, um, I right. talk about this important idea of small steps and the law of momentum. And so um, uh, the idea, if you're listening and, and you feel like you're stuck, is um, take five minutes and take um, a five minutes of action on anything that it is that you've been avoiding or need to do and just commit to doing five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, you've succeeded and you can stop. And then do the same thing the next day. And so what will happen is if you do this for five days, you'll spend 25 minutes. And on most things, if you're writing a novel, that's not a lot of time. It's not like you're going to get halfway through writing your novel. But what you will do that's more important than getting halfway through your novel is you'll develop momentum. You'll develop um, a certain amount of daily momentum of doing what it is, whether it's exercising, whether it's writing your novel, whether it's doing your taxes. Um, and it's the momentum that is really important in terms of ultimately, ultimately being able to tackle and succeed in that accomplishment. So that's my best advice I can offer people um, is to just jump in and do something very simple in no more than five minutes, but make that into a daily practice or a daily habit and start building your momentum. Now, what if a person says, I don't even know when I'm going to, I don't want to do it. I don't have time. When am I going to have time? I don't, even, I don't have two minutes. What does a person hmm. do? I mean, are well, we uh, with excuses and reasons why we don't want to do things? And how you know, do we if, bust that for day one? Yeah. Day one, how do you bust through hmm. that? Well, I think that um, if, if that's one of the problems with, for instance, being behind on your taxes and knowing you've only got a couple of days and saying, okay, um, I'm going to spend two hours tonight working on my taxes. Because for most of us, if you have busy life, it's pretty hard to carve out two hours. But realistically, um, there's almost nobody who can't find five minutes. It means getting up five minutes early. It means um, watching five minutes less of TV or spending five minutes less on Facebook. Most of us can't really justify an excuse that we don't have five minutes. And what the real issue is generally is our feeling state. We really don't feel like doing this thing. Um, but by taking it on with only a five-minute commitment, it's much easier to move forward and actually devote yourself to the thing that you really don't feel like doing because you're only committing to five minutes. So you don't have the same level of resistance to that commitment as you do if you were going to try to block out two hours. So that's one of the reasons that uh, that five-minute commitment um, can actually be done by almost anybody uh, because it actually is such a minimal commitment and we have such minimal resistance to it and, and almost nobody can really say, I, I just don't have five minutes. Good. And what I'd love to do in a future podcast, is have people get involved who are doing this five-minute program and have them call in and tell us how they're doing. So if you're listening sure, that would now, be great. Yes, um, I'd like you to get started with the five-minute-a-day program and subscribe to my podcast, and I'll be back in touch with you as to when the next show is. You can also get... Um, updates on talkboxradio.com. I'll let you know when the next show is. And we will have you back on. I hope you'd like to come back on, Greg. 
I, I would be happy to. And let me just clarify that you don't have to stop at the end of five minutes. You, it's a minimum commitment. So you can go for an hour if you want to, but as soon as you finish your five minutes, you can stop and you've honored your commitment. Right. And you should give yourself a gold, a gold star, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, I... I are star charts only for kids? Come on. I mean, and this could be a program for kids too, but, you know, if you're an adult who's procrastinating, you know, put it on the, I say, give yourself a star chart and see what you accomplished. You know, yes, I did it today. Yes. So we have not. I want to thank you again so much for coming onto our show. It's been such a pleasure having on Greg and we will talk again. Was were there any final thoughts in the last minute remaining here? Well, um I'd say that, you know, the uh the main thing that I'd just like to say to people, um, right now we're kind of just beginning the holiday season and I think um uh, for a lot of people, this is a time when we kind of, you know, let go and, and try to relax. But um, for a lot of people, it's a really stressful time. And I think one of the key things is really just, just um, to try to relax into the uncertainty of the situation and realize that most of how things unfold are things we can't control. Um, and so um, being able to accept what's uncontrollable, which includes all of our family and all of our relatives and what gifts we get get for the holidays, being able to just basically accept what isn't controllable, I think, is one of the keys to reducing our stress during the holiday season. Beautifully said. I'd like to have a podcast devoted to that very soon, too. So thank you so much, and thank you, listeners, and enjoy the rest of your day or evening. Get, Get started with your five minutes. Take care, Greg. Thank you, Lisa, and and, uh, have a great holiday season. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard, like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming, and I'm loud. Roar! Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Cool, Dad. And I could be a super dad with two free Samsung Galaxy phones and call myself Double Galaxy Man. Or you could give the second phone to your sidekick. Yeah, I guess I could do that. That's right. Two free Samsung Galaxy On5 smartphones are all yours when you switch to Metro PCS. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.